Wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. This is not mere greeting card sentiment, friends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Amen. Uh, if you're standing, you may be seated. Well, we are in a series called Even Now, Finding Joy in the Journey, and we're working our way through a real first century letter from Paul to a church in the ancient city of Philippi, and you just heard read a portion of this great letter you heard read so well this morning by Eli and Livia from the Message Translation of the Bible. This letter is very personal. Uh, Paul's writing to people that he knew very well. He's writing to the congregation of a church that he started. He served as their first pastor. And now he's building into them still, even though now he's far away and in prison. We're coming to the end of this letter. We have just this week and next Sunday to wrap things up. And we're entering a section uh, simply called Exhortations. This is a series that Paul gives of exhortations or challenges as he wraps up this letter. And today we're going to look at four of them. Uh, remember Paul's writing about how to uh, have joy in all circumstances. How to live in freedom in a world of anxiety. How to handle worry. And we're going to look at four exhortations, four challenges, four things that we need to grasp if we're to be free of worry and if we are to experience the peace that God promises. And the first exhortation is about right relationships. One of the biggest sources of anxiety is other people. Right? When we're at odds with other people, when, when we're in a disagreement with family and friends, it's very hard to have peace. And in this church at Philippi, apparently there are two women in this church who are at odds with each other, and it's beginning to affect the entire church. And this is where our reading picks up today from the New International Version. Um, Paul writes, I plead with Iodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, Iodia and Syntyche, uh, these are two women's names. You know, a lot of old names are making their way back right now, but I think it's going to be a little while before people start naming their babies Iodia and Syntyche. This is the only place in the Bible that these names appear. And unfortunately for these women, they will be forever remembered only for their conflict. We do not know what the conflict was about, Maybe one was Republican and one was Democrat. Maybe one was mask and one was no mask. Maybe one was classic and one was modern. But now whatever their issue was, the issue is not the issue anymore. Now it's gotten personal. Now, now it's about their relationship that's at stake. And so Paul pleads with them publicly to, uh, to mend their differences. And, and I mean very publicly. The custom was in that day for letters like this one to be read aloud in a gathering of the church. So imagine that church service when this letter was read aloud. These two women are in the room, probably sitting in separate sections of the sanctuary, and they hear their names called out by Paul. Can you imagine the, the, the preacher 
you know, calling out someone's name. Can you imagine that, Joyce? Someone, a, pe- a preacher calling someone's name from the platform. Can you, it's unthinkable, right, Doug? That's, that the preacher would call somebody's name out uh, right from the platform. Is this even fair for Paul to do this? Is that crossing some kind of line? Well, for Paul, this was a critical issue. Right, Paul, Paul believed this deeply. To, to have two people, two Christians, who are part of the same church in a broken relationship was as far from the Christ life as Paul could imagine. And yet it's very easy for any of us to slide into broken relationships. We, we carry grudges. We exude icy demeanors. We shut people out. But then we say everything's great between me and Jesus, between me and my church, when it's not. This kind of stuff goes all, on all the time, and it usually goes unaddressed, but now Paul has made that impossible. He has called this issue to light, uh, both for these women and for the entire church. He also laid out a way to fix the problem, uh, a method, and this becomes a model for everyone. I want you to notice that, first of all, Paul gives a personal plea a personal admonition to work this out. And he gives it not just to the two women, but to the entire church. We are to come alongside people who are experiencing a relational rift and help them mend it. Notice uh, also that he, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't get involved in who's right and who's wrong. Uh, maybe it's because, as in most cases, both were right and both were wrong. And the problem is really how they dealt with each other. Maybe Paul doesn't say anything because the issue is too trivial to even make a difference. Or maybe he does have in mind a verdict on these two women. But what matters most of all to Paul is that these two women restore their relationship. This, this is a good word for us. Because we want to make it all about who's right and who's wrong. We want to identify who was the offender and who was the offended. And we want the offended to be vindicated and we want the offender to get a slap on the wrist but for Paul all that really matters is this relationship being restored that was first and foremost now if you've read any of Paul's letters you know that if this divide between church members was about a substantial moral issue or a substantial doctrinal issue Paul would have dealt with it right away that was Paul's style but this one isn't about that And 99% of all conflict isn't about that. Notice, uh, thirdly, he tells them to solve it in the Lord. This would be a phrase easy to miss. Solve it in the Lord. Inside uh, the Christian community is a different kind of unity that can exist on the basis of our relationship to Jesus. That's the foundation. And then notice, uh, uh, fourthly, that he challenges the whole community to own the effort. Specifically, he makes reference to a true companion. We don't know who that is. That person's not named. A true companion of his, a yoke fellow to help. And he does mention also a man by the name of Clement. Also a name not coming back anytime soon. Sorry if your name is is Clement. Uh, We have no idea who these people are or what their role was in the church. But we can assume that what Paul's doing here is calling on some people who are wise and mature to come alongside and help out in this conflict. This is, this is family language. No one's being condemned. No sides are being taken. It's a story of two women, two sisters in the faith, two good people 
who are at odds with each other, and Paul pleads with them and with the whole uh, friendship community around them to help them sort this out. Now, maybe right about now, you're thinking about someone with whom you are at odds, and maybe you don't want to work things out. You certainly don't want to work things out in front of a whole bunch of other people. But imagine that you get offended or hurt by someone and you go to that person and you say, look, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. We already have more in common than could ever divide us. So let's start there and work our way out of this. And if you're having trouble doing that, then you uh, and the other person go and get someone else or a couple people of all people that you both trust and you say, would you help us see what we're not seeing? Clearly, we have some blind spots. Would you be an objective third party and help us iron this out? And then after a coffee or two and some prayers and some hard truths and some apologies and some fresh insight and understanding, you both resolve it and you move forward in community and in mutual service. Isn't that better than a snarky Facebook post? Isn't that better than talking about someone behind their back? Isn't that better than living in icy resentment? Community is really hard work, but it is so worth it. So the first admonition is about right relationships. The second admonition is about right thinking. Right thinking. And this is really important for Paul, and this is what he says in the next line. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again Rejoice. Now, this is the second time we have seen this line, and we talked about this line when we saw it the first time two weeks ago. And remember, we said that joy is a choice. Joy is not a, a, an emotion. It is a decision. We talked about how joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness is based on external uh, circumstances, but joy comes from within. The Apostle Paul writes about joy from prison, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He's lost his freedom. His source of joy clearly is not the circumstances around him. He has another source of joy. And Paul tells everyone, choose joy. Choose joy. Uh, have, have you ever heard of the, the uh, seven deadly sins? You've heard of those? That's a list that goes back to medieval times, back to the Middle Ages. Seven things that are harmful to human life. Here's the list as it classically appears, the seven deadly sins, anger, pride, lust, gluttony, envy, sloth or laziness, and greed. These are seven deadly, these are seven harmful things for human life. Uh, did you know there used to be eight? This list of seven goes back to the, the Middle Ages, but go back to the fourth century to some of the earliest Christian leaders. We have lists that included eight deadly sins. The one that got lost somehow along the way is this one, despair. Sometimes listed as despond or despondency. Sometimes talked about in terms of purposeful sadness. John Cassian, one of the leaders of the early monastic movement, he lived in the late 4th, early 5th centuries. He talks about this as being a weariness or a heaviness of hearts. And the early church fathers saw joylessness as a plague on the human soul. Now, what they're talking about here, they're not talking about what we would call today clinical depression, 
right? There is such a thing called clinical depression, and that has biological and medical causes, and there are biological and medical solutions. They're not writing about that. The fathers are talking about just having a lousy attitude. They're, they're talking about choosing against joy when you could choose for joy. They're talking about being hypercritical of everything, that you, should not, you shouldn't give in to a hypercritical appraisal of life. Do not mistake the kind of joy they write about as being a pretend joy where you force a smile and pretend. That's not it. Joy is authentic. Joy is real. It is a settled determination. It is a way of life grounded in a deeper reality. That's joy. So Paul here repeats the same thing that he says elsewhere, choose joy, choose joy. One of the ways you do this is by choosing what you think about. And this is very important for Paul. He says in the very next line, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Paul writes a lot about attitude in his letter to the church at Philippi, that attitude really matters. Uh, Viktor Frankl, who, who experienced the horror of Nazi concentration camps, he once wrote, God chooses what we go through, and we choose how to go through it. We don't always choose our circumstances, but we always get to choose how we respond and so Paul says, choose your attitude. Choose your thoughts. Direct your brain. Because your brain is really powerful. Some scientists estimate that our brains can hold 100 trillion thoughts. Scattered thoughts. Random thoughts. Half-baked thoughts. But 100 trillion thoughts. Some, it is thought that we virtually remember every thought we have ever Thought. And I want to try and experiment with you today. I'm going, to, I'm going to quote the first half of a very old commercial or jingle. And I want to see if your brains have retained uh, the words from this. It's kind of a little game, and you can play at home as well. A uh, little game show here. I, I'm, I'm not going to sing the tunes, but there's an old commercial that says, Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Yeah, okay. Uh, Good, that's seared in your brain, right? I am stuck on Band-Aid brand because Band-Aid stuck on me. If you got that right, you can give yourself a little pat on the back there at home as well. Um, Lucky Charms, they're magically delicious, and they are. And some of you are eating Lucky Charms right now, probably. Uh, uh, this last one, it, it's, it's not even words. It, it's, it's a tune, but it, the words are just gibberish. I'm just going to read them to you as, as they appear in print. Ba da ba ba ba. But I'm loving it. Ba 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 ba. I'm loving it. I read that McDonald's spent $1.37 billion when they first launched the I'm Loving It campaign. $1.37 billion on a song that only has three real words. And technically, loving, not a real word. This song has two real words, the longest of which has two letters. $1.37 billion, but it is seared into your mind. You will take those words with you to your grave. They are locked in, and Paul says, lock into your mind some good thoughts that will fuel and shape your life. And he gives six items. We consider these six, six food groups 
if you will, to feed your brain. I want you to see him again. Uh, the first one he said, think about things that are true. Think about things that are true. I, I saw a survey one time that only 8% of the things that we worry about are worth worrying about. 92% of the things that obsess us are things that aren't true, couldn't be true, are imagined, didn't happen, and will never happen. So focus on things that are true. Don't focus on the what-ifs, on the hypotheticals. Focus on things that are true. Secondly, Paul says, think about things that are noble. A lot of times we spend time thinking about the things that we look down on and make us angry. What if you focused on things that were up? People and things that are good and make you want to be good. Think about things that are noble. Think about things, thirdly, that are right. And here, this, this is the sense of justice, as in what's your duty and responsibility. Focus on what's the right thing to do. Not, not what you can get away with, not what you can avoid. Focus on what's the right thing to do. Fourthly, Think about things that are pure. And this does have the idea of moral purity. Focus on pure thoughts. You know, uh, the psalmist one time said, I, I will set before me uh, no vile thing. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. I won't let anything vile, anything degrading enter through these eyes into my mind. I'm going to protect that because that will shape me. That will affect me. Which is why things like pornography are not neutral. We know that pornography is addictive and progressive. We know it's harmful to children. So what if we printed off this first? I will set no vile thing before me. What if we print it out and put it on our computer screens, on our phones? I won't let any impure thoughts into this brain because it will shape the way that I think. Focus on what's pure. Fifthly, Paul says, think about things that are lovely, and Paul's word here, he, doesn't, he does not use the word for physical attractiveness. He uses a broader word. What's that essence that makes a person or a thing truly beautiful? Think about that. And then sixthly, lastly, he says, focus on what's admirable. Sometimes we admire the wrong people, the wrong causes, the wrong organizations. What if we found admirable people and causes and organizations? Think about that. Um, Paul's whole point here, of course, is that every day we make choices about what we're going to fill our minds with. And whatever you feed your minds with will shape you. So Paul says, feed your minds with good thoughts. Focus your minds on right thinking. And then Paul goes, goes on to the next exhortation, which is right praying. Right praying. And this next verse, uh, I've told you, has been my go-to verse over these last six months. And we've talked about this before, so we won't talk about it a lot here. But man, this is really it. In fact, I'd like you to read this aloud with me if you're here with me in the sanctuary. If you're at home and you're in a place where you can do so comfortably uh, without uh, being made fun of, would you go ahead and read this aloud uh, with me? These great words from the Apostle Paul. Ready? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition... With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Hmm. That's been my go-to place right now. 
if you're anxious about anything. Some of you aren't anxious. Some of you don't worry. You're not natural worriers. You just believe that somehow everything will always work out in the end. And it's just that kind of attitude that irritates the rest of us. Because worriers see non-worriers as being irresponsible. You're not paying attention. The truth is that both camps are wrong. Paul puts both camps in their place. He says, don't be anxious. But he does not say, be passive. There is something that you can do. There is something that you should do. And that is present that anxiety, present your request to God, and trust that God cares for you. This is not easy. This is not the easy way out because it is not easy to trust. Because trust means letting it go, laying it down, walking away. It's very, very difficult. But then Paul says that peace that passes human understanding will be yours. Paul's last exhortation we'll look at today has to do with right living. Right living. And Paul's final challenge is this. This is the final line for today. Paul says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice. Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul closes a lot of his letters with something similar to this. Paul says, if if you've learned anything in what you've read or heard, if you've seen anything in my life that's helpful to you, do it. Put it into practice. Flesh it out. Live it out. It's like the story that Soren Kierkegaard tells about a a make-believe country that's that's where where only ducks live. And this country of ducks, it's Sunday morning, and all the ducks from the village come into church. They waddle down the center aisle. They waddle into their pews, and they take their seats. And then the duck pastor comes out from the duck platform and comes up and stands behind the duck pulpit, and he pulls out the duck Bible, um, did I mention this was not, not a true story? Did I, this is Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, 1800s. Uh, alle, this is allegory. The duck pastor walks up behind the duck pulpit. He opens the duck Bible, and he says, Ducks, you have wings. You can soar like eagles, ducks. You have wings. You can fly. You can soar. And all the ducks in the congregation said, Amen. And then they waddled home. Don't waddle home. Whatever landed in your life today from the teachings and the life of the Apostle Paul about right relationships, about right thinking, about right praying, about right actions, about dealing with relational breakdown, about feeding your minds with things that will shape you well, about letting go of worry, about putting into practice things that you have seen modeled, whatever landed in your life, do it. Don't waddle home. Will you pray with me? Well, God, we thank you for these challenges or exhortations from Paul. 
Speak to us through them. Shape us by them. Give us the courage to apply them. I want to pray specifically now for those who are in relational conflict, those locked in icy resentment. Give them eyes to see, Lord. Give them strength to initiate. Give to them the mind of Jesus Christ. We pray now for those who are feeling anxious and worried. Receive our requests and petitions with thanksgiving and grant to us the ability to leave our concerns with you, to lay them down, to trust, to experience that promised peace which passes human understanding. We pray for our church, our region, our nation, and our world, your protection, your healing, your peace, and your joy. And we pray this together as your gathered people, as your church, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen.